Bright Sheng is a composer, conductor, and pianist. His work has been commissioned and performed by many prestigious institutions throughout the world, including Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, Kennedy Center, St. Petersburg Philharmonic, Hong Kong Philharmonic, and special commissions from the White House and for the opening ceremony for the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games. Sheng has collaborated with many distinguished artists, including Leonard Bernstein, Yo-Yo Ma, David Henry Wan, Christoph Eschenbach, and many others. Bright Sheng, welcome to the Creative Process. Thanks for having me. So I want to just give listeners、uh, just a taste of the variety of your music, which really crosses、uh, many regions,、uh, historical periods. But、uh, let us just tell us a little bit about this piece that you selected, Shanghai Overture.、Uh, Shanghai Overture was、uh, commissioned by my alma mater, the Shanghai Conservatory of Music, at their seventieth anniversary. I was thinking about what kind of music would be appropriate for this kind of occasion, and I thought of Stravinsky's、uh, period of neoclassical, where he using the old Renaissance、uh, Baroque music genre and add a modern twist to it. So I thought I should do that with Chinese classical music. So I selected two elements. One is a, a classical Chinese. Wind music called General's Call, and that's as the at the beginning, and then you get to in the middle of the piece, you hear this called Jiangnan Sizhu, which is a chamber music of southern of China around Shanghai. So these are well-known tunes or or music that people could recognize in that region, and but I put a modern twist to it and put together called it Shanghai Overture. So it's partly my kind of A reminiscence of my childhood, growing growing up in Shanghai.
we may play more, but that is just a flavor. How can, uh, it must be difficult and excuse me for asking a, such a straightforward question, but how do you translate your memories into music? Into It's such a dramatic piece. So I try to preserve the, you know, this is for Western Symphony Orchestra, but I try to preserve the ancient Chinese music kind of flavor. So you imagine in Chinese band, the country music that uh, people usually reserve that for wedding or for big moments or for, for funerals and that kind of a feeling. And it has drums and, and music playing. So I try to preserve that from my memory because what we have now is just a tune you know you can probably rec recognize the tunes but the execution of making it translate that into western orchestra and to make it uh, sound like it's a it's a chinese band playing with chinese instruments you know sonai or bamboo flute and or chinese trumpet things like that so that that takes a little bit work but people have done that and again you know Stravinsky had done that with his music to preserve the flavor of the baroque music and the style of baroque music but at the same time he put a modern twist on it so that's what I try to do and you've been in America for such a long period but you've always been like traveling back imaginatively uh, and then I know with your involvement with the Silk Road maybe has you traveled back not just to China but to um, other regions how did those physical travels not imaginative travels enrich your creative process? My fascination of Chinese music started when I was very young, when I was living in Qinghai, part of Tibet, which is part of, it's called Eastern Tibet, what we call uh, Tibet now in Chinese called Xizang, which means Western Tibet. So Qinghai used to be Eastern Tibet. And when I was living there, there were still quite, quite overwhelming Tibetan cultures that, uh, that I learned, but also other ethnicities and their folk music. So when I got fascinated with that, I carried through with me that experience and fascination. When I went to the Shanghai Conservatory as a student, I then more systematically studied uh, Chinese classical music and, and Chinese folk music and instrumental music and so on and so forth. But my real fascination was after I left China, had been living in New, uh, New York for a few years. And then I was thinking about where these Chinese music came from. So my, actually after I left China, my vision of Chinese music had enlarged to Asian music in general and Central Asian music in particular. That's when, you know, uh, Yo-Yo and I was talking about Silk Road and I, actually visited, uh, spent over two months, I think I visited the, the first Silk Road that was conducted over 2,500 years ago uh, by a Chinese general, uh, sort of started this Silk Road trade. So I visited a lot of folk music and classical music. And by then I had 
absorbed a great deal of the music cultures from there and I from these regions and I realized Chinese culture was always absorbing and assimilating from those cultures and Chinese culture was not an isolated few people kind of invented a culture culture has always been evolving with uh, neighboring cultures and developed into you know what we know as say Chinese music but I think Asian music in general there are blending the fusion there's has been there for thousands of years so so that was very helpful for my composition in general, I think in, in principle, because we, we're all thinking about, okay, you know, I'm a Chinese and my ethnicity is Chinese and is my composition or should I my, my composition reflect that culture or what if I just ignore that? And there are people do ignore that, the people do passionately get involved with that. So I, I wonder what would be the right thing, but the, since blending itself was part of it, so I realized that my writing should reflect who I am. I have been living part of my life in early part of my life in China and, and the rest in the US, but I, I, I you know, have been a world traveler and I've been traveling around the world. I'm fascinated in all cultures. I've written pieces that are based on in the Scandinavian cultures, music cultures, and and so on and so forth. So I, I think I'm, I, I like to use the analogy of food. I like to taste all kinds of food, French food, Chinese food, Japanese food, you know, Norwegian food. You know, I, I'm not really particularly drawn to one particular food as long as the food is good. So if you take that view into writing or creativity, I think that's very important to kind of, open myself up and just write the best music that I thought I could. So that that experience was very important for me. And two, two questions that I would like to ask based on this is what I love is that it, you are like self-created. As I understand, you had, I think your mother was your piano teacher or you? Teacher, yes. And so you had a kind of musical education but maybe it you kind of almost also learned your own rules as well because you had to fight for that musical education, as I understand. And I think this is an interesting place, if if I may say, and I think that this is something that you 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 prize as well that about not just following, you know, being able to break those rules or, or kind of come to those understanding of those rules through teachers, but also teaching yourself. Yeah, I think for anybody, um, it doesn't matter what profession. I think that one's best teacher is oneself. No matter how great teacher you have, ultimately you want to be yourself and therefore you can create something or do something that truly on your own. Of course, you learn from the past. It's very important to carry the tradition from the people who you've done. Like in a lab, you, you first, before you do the, try to invent something, you have to try it to find out if, if anyone else has tried and failed or maybe succeeded, you, you got to know what happened. And same thing with creativity. You cannot just ignore the past. You think about music creation composers, every comp great composers in a way was stepping on the shoulder of his predecessors. Uh, without Bach, wouldn't be Haydn, 
and Mozart and, and, and then for Beethoven later and Brahms and Mahler. If you think about all this tradition. So I think it's very important to understand the past, but take that to become your own and then to write something on your own. So in the early days, because of the specific uh, situation that in history that I was living during that time, that I had very uh, little uh, music education opportunities, but I was, I loved the music. So I just got every chance to learn by myself. So I created this self-taught kind of a habit, which stayed with me and very usefully uh, for the rest of my life. But of course, I later on, I had great teachers. Among them is Leonard Bernstein. You know, I was his student for five years. So all that kind of came together. You know, Bernstein used to say, he said, our music, his music and my music are quite different, but we love each other's music. So I think that also tells that people learn from each other, but not necessarily imitating from each other, but what you learn from it's basic thinking. And so what Leonard Bernstein taught me, another thing is to open up, you know, I have been always been an active performer, pianist, uh, conducted, but, you know, not to the extent that like him, you know, where, where he was just foremost as a musician, you know, and then you think about you as a composer or you, you, you wear the hat, sometimes a composer or a conductor or performer or educator. So I, to me, uh, this is all the same way. Actually, more than just the music, there are other art forms. There, there are there are a lot of a lot of things that it goes through this on the same foundation. So once you understand that, you can you can teach yourself uh, constantly. So what I tell my students now, I said, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could get a chance to study with Mr. Brahms or Mr. Mozart? Would you want to? And of course they say, yes. I said, okay, well, I would introduce you to these guys. And then the, the next step is you will study with them because all the scores are there. All you need to do is to find a secret and to study with them directly. And that's what I did. That's what Bernstein introduced me to these people. And I continued my study uh, through these, uh, through that tradition. But at the same time, of course, you don't write like Brahms or like Mahler, but you write on your own, your, with your own life experience, with the music I grew up with and the music I studied and I'm fascinated with, and I write the best music I can. And sometimes, even as you cross uh, periods of time and go into history, these masters, you can collaborate with them as, as you have uh, translating their pieces of music to orchestrating them yes so you you, you can collab yeah that's that's exactly i never thought of that way yes stravinsky did i did it with chinese old, old chinese music and norwegian folk music and in a way you are collaborating with these artists without knowing them or sometimes even without knowing who they are but Yes, all music was created by somebody, um, whether we notated or given credit to or not. Uh, once you use that, you're fascinated by them and by this music, and you try to add your understanding or your part of it to make it slightly different or just to beautify it. You know, sometimes we ideas come from dream. I 
last night, uh, actually, I had a dream. I heard this tune in my head over, over, over again. And it sounded familiar. I couldn't figure out whose tune was this. And so I got up and I said, well, that tune must be somebody's. And I couldn't figure it out. And I thought, okay, in any case, let me write it down. I just wrote it down. And maybe this is useful. Maybe one day I figure it out. Maybe it's not mine. But it doesn't matter. I could use it. My wife says, why don't you just use it anyway? I said, okay, I might. So at this moment in my the piece that the work that I'm working on, I'm not particularly needing that tune and you know to for this, but it just came to me. So I wouldn't let it pass, for example. I, I had few incidents that I had actually used the music in my dream in my compositions. Quite often I dream to hear music, but some of them that was not usable or later you look at it, it doesn't fit in. So I just abandoned them. But one of them was interesting. I years, years ago, I wrote, uh, one day I had a dream. I was sitting down in the audience. I saw this great pianist, Emmanuel X, was playing a piano concerto. And I was sitting in the audience. I said, well, that, that, piano, that music sounded pretty good. And then I said, I, but I couldn't figure out what piece was. And I woke up and I heard this music and I said to myself, whose music, just like today, I, whose music was this? I could, And then I realized it could be mine. So I wrote it down and, uh, you know, the piano concerto he was writing, uh, he was playing. And then uh, six months later, I was living in Chicago as the composer in residence was the symphony there. And he came to play Mozart, another concerto. And we had lunch and he asked me during the lunch, he said, would you write a concerto for me? I said, you know, it's funny you asked that. I had the first five minutes he have written already. And I told him about this dream. And so that's probably the first few minutes of the music in the piece that turned out to be called Red Silk Dance. It's a capriccio short piano concerto.
somebody like me, when I have something that I think is beautiful or it's good, then I would not pass it. I would write it down and just in case. That's so interesting that you are open enough and have the memory to remember the music from your dreams because it's hard to hold on to what we have in our dreams. But it seems like it's also like a kind of secret or a story we tell ourselves in order to imagine it was already finished. I love if I am going to do something creative, you have a feeling that it already existed. It already happened to you, just like in a dream. And you just have to sort of follow the steps or remember the steps that already occurred. Uh, and it's a it's a nice way to help you get there. I just love that you're able to do that. And and also the fact that sometimes when, when you do something that it's your own creation, but it's so complete, it can feel to you like it's somebody else. Or you have you ever composed things or you worked on something and it's so long ago you you don't really remember it because it passed almost in a dream? In my own work, I usually recognize it. You know, I when I listen to music, I remember the music very well, but I don't make effort or I never make an effort to try to remember which pieces, who, which piece, you know, people, some people are really good at numbers, you know, this is written, Mozart sonata number, so and so, and, and what a Keisha number, um, but I, I don't, I, I just basically remember the music, so that is either bad or good because when I wrote music, this sometimes sounded like somebody I couldn't figure out whose music that it was or which piece was. But I'm kind of saying, okay, this is maybe a little bit similar. You know, uh, early on I wrote a piece, and when I finished, it's a choral orchestra and a choral piece. When I finished, I said, there's some Stravinsky kind of ideas in it. And, and I was, that was early on in my life, in my career, and I was afraid people might say, okay, you just copying Stravinsky. So I thought, okay, maybe I should write in the title, a la Stravinsky, just kind of dedicated to Stravinsky. And so, and nobody said anything ever since, because they say, okay, this is a tribute to Stravinsky or to Bartok. Those are the two early 20th century composers that I admire greatly. So, um, yeah, that happens. But mostly, of course, you have to, most of the composition that I wrote from inspirations that came from various sources, sometimes at the most unsuspected moments. My, my student was asking yesterday, uh, asking me, say, what were you doing? I said, you know, we, we have a swimming pool in the house, so we are opening the pool. And oh, oh, he said, oh yeah, were you thinking about music when you're doing that kind of thing? I say, of course I was thinking about music. So students were talking about complaining to me, said, I don't have enough time to compose. You know, I save two hours, you know, they have other classes and, and, and so I save two hours a day to compose. But by the time I get to those two hours, I'm tired, I'm sleepy, I'm looking, I'm staring at the blank paper and I, I, you know, and, and time is passing and I had pressure, I have to create something. And the more anxious I, I was and I, the less creative I become and I couldn't write anything. I said, that's not a way to compose. You compose 24 hours, even before you sleep or during your sleep, or when you wake up, uh, you think about the music uh, constantly. I, 
exercise that I like to ride bicycles. You know, when I ride bicycle, I, I think about music. And usually those ideas came. And then I asked myself, I say, okay, that's pretty good, but can I come up with something even better? And I keep thinking. So that's very, actually, no, no pressure to me. You know, there's no pressure, time pressure you have to do. You're just thinking about, okay, I'm exercising now, and I'm just thinking about, and you usually come up with two or three ideas, and I picked a good one. And then by the time, actually, I have the two hours to sit at a piano, uh, you know, try to write them down, which is the, the next process for composers, is you, you already heard the music in your head. And those two hours, I couldn't wait to write them down because in my head, I already had music. I just need to write them down. Now, writing them down is a technique one has to learn. It's not anybody can, can you can hear music, you don't know how to write it down. That's to translate into a some kind of secret code, which is the music notation that musicians can reproduce. Symphony orchestras, opera houses, they can just look at these secret code um, uh, you know, it could reproduce the music. So that's that's a technique that, you know, you, you learn at school from your teachers and by studying scores. And that's those are, those are the things that you, you learn to translate uh, or transform into something that could be reproduced. So you get as close as possible from the sound that you heard. And that's also another technique. So you, you can it reproduce the sound uh, with instruments, because sometimes you, when I hear the sound in my head, they're not specific instrument, they're just some, some wonderful sound. So I have to recreate, okay, this is a flute plus clarinet, or maybe the strings, you know, what are they doing, and then to make the sound, and to, to be as close as possible to recreate the music. So that itself, it takes experiences, like anything else. But the other thing that helps me a great deal as a composer is that the fact that I'm also a performer. One of the problems uh, I think existing nowadays, okay, I think it started at the, the end of the last century was that composers no longer a performer and vice versa. A Glenn Gould, the great Canadian pianist used to say, he said the difference between the performers of his generation and his previous generations was that his generation, most of the performers were no longer composers. In the older days, everybody wrote music. Some of them are not so good, but they were, they helped a great deal for performers to understand the composition and therefore take the leap. You know, one of the things that Bernstein did was that, you know, he, he once told me, he said, the reason I'm a good conductor is because I'm a good composer. So I thought, okay, because you're a composer, you understand the composition from the composer's approach, so it's easy. But now I realize, as I'm conducting more and performing, you know, as a pianist more, I realize he was composing all the time, whether he was doing Mahler, whether he was doing Mozart, you know, he was composing on the podium. So... So to me, those two are kind of one helps each other and you can't really separate them. So when I write music, I was thinking about, okay, now how do I, I would I, if I have to conduct this or what the orchestra reaction would be, how to make it the easiest way to, for them to reproduce the sound. So I think that's also very important. 
Uh, and I therefore, I um, uh, 10 years ago, I started a workshop a festival in Hong Kong at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology uh, called The Intimacy of Creativity um, to deal specifically with this issue of composers meet performers and they work together on a new composition. So composers are, are required to do changes, to make changes, revisions right on the spot. And within the day, they write the piece. So the whole piece was workshop for a whole week. The performers perform their new version and they give comments and they make revisions and go three, two or three times and through the week. And then we finally perform uh, twice. Um, and between the two performances, there might be changes again. So I think um, um, through that process and a composition, you know, in the older days, for example, all the composition went through that process. And I think it's a privilege for us, for me as a composer, to work with a great performer or conductor, performer, and not to take advantage of his or her talent and to get into my composition. To, to tell you a story, Beethoven wrote historically a first grand symphony, Heroica, the third symphony. And everybody knew he was up to something great, but he never, he finished the piece, the symphony six months before the premiere day. And, and he would not perform it publicly. For six months, he had people coming and read through parts of the piece and he revised for six months. And even for Beethoven, he wasn't so sure. He wanted to make sure the piece was good. So now we don't know how much of the Third Symphony they actually had input of these performer friends of his um, that, who had input. But we all say, okay, it's, a, it's Beethoven. You know, Beethoven took all the credit. So I think, I think for me too, as a composer, I would like to take credit for other people's intelligence. And, and I would love that. And, uh, but sometimes I give credit as much as I could. Yo-Yo uh, Ma edited a piece of mine with his bowing and fingering. So of course the published the score is edited by Yo-Yo Ma, you know, people like that. So I think no matter how smart you are, you can always learn from someone else and that other people can add to your creation. Because music composition is not like a painting. You finish, you hang on the wall, whatever it is. is. Uh, other people, of course, as a spectator, and you might think this way, you might interpret it that way, but that's up to the, the audience. But music is, I often like to say, when I finish a, a composition, there's only 50% of the work. The other 50% is the recreation uh, by performers, symphony orchestras, and you know, pianist or whatever, whoever is playing my piece. And all that work has to be realized by the performers. So they added their creativity, at least 50% into the piece. So we know, for example, nowadays we say, okay, now somebody wasn't so good at ruining the Beethoven sonata, piano sonata, say, let's say. But somebody, oh, made the Beethoven sonata so great. So that, what is the difference between those two? That's their creativity of the pianist. Uh, different pianists, their creativity, they added to the composition. So no matter how great the composition is, it could be ruined or could be beautified. It depends on the recreator.
So it's very important to understand the other side of the game, so to speak. I think that's so generous in in terms of uh, and so appreciative. I I hadn't heard it as much. I mean, you hear it from theater, you hear it from even dance, where dancers are involved in the choreography. But I don't hear it as often from the point of view of classical music, where it is come to be seen by many as it's fixed even though we honor the performers but how lovely that you embrace an interpretation that could yes to be always listening i think it's so important and uh, anything that makes the work stronger or resonant just rich with voices i, I love that hello this is angela giving you a brief interlude for someone who grew up in China and has been listening to traditional Chinese music very often like me, Bright Shell's music sounds both familiar and strange. He incorporates the sound of traditional Chinese music instruments into a neoclassic composing style, so to me the effect of the music is something like seeing the children of an old friend. It's like, I feel that I've seen it before, and I feel very familiar. But when I observe that appearance closely, it becomes more and more like a stranger because of the many unfamiliar details. When I listen to Sheng's music, for the first few seconds I will think, ah, that's the sound of a Chinese instrument, and I will instantly feel connected with it. But as the music proceeds, more and more I notice the difference between Sheng's composition and that of a traditional Chinese music and feeling distance from the piece. However, this feeling between knowing and not knowing is actually quite enjoyable because just like how Sheng began to see traditional Chinese music from a new perspective after he went to a foreign land and lived with a foreign culture, so do I begin to listen to the sound of Chinese instruments in his music as if getting to know some new friends. Before I listened to his music, my brain used to process the sounds as if there are only one sound, which is the sound of the two familiar traditional music that accompanies me for most of my life. In Sheng's music, each of these sounds stands out in the composition and they obtain a new harmony. So Sheng's music actually makes me recognize the charisma of the sound of each individual traditional Chinese instrument, and it opens my mind for more possible ways for them to come together in a composition. That was my interlude. I hope you have enjoyed it. And now, without further ado, let's go back to the second part of the interview between Mia Funk and Bright Sheng. So I want to, uh, there's another piece here, this uh, a, more, a recent piece, Let Fly. Just tell us a little bit uh, how um, you, you merge your different influences. Yeah, this work was written and commissioned by a great violinist friend of mine, uh, Gil Shaham. It was the first time I heard him play. I was totally drawn in by his, how musical it is, uh, how beautiful it is, not just how technically he's perfect, also how, how musical he brings out. So um, I remember that he, he was playing and notes just fly into the air and sings and that feeling. And then later on, when I finally got to write this piece, I had my daughter that was just born and her name is Fei Fei, which means in Chinese to fly. So I, when she was born, I wrote um, 
a child rhyme, just you know, very simple tune. And I used to sing or play on piano or or on little marimbas, you know, the toy marimba to play for her. And she would recognize the tune and smile before she could speak. So that tune stayed with me. That became the main theme of this piece. So so I called it Let Fly. In Chinese, actually called it Fei Fei Guang, which means her name, the song of Fei Fei. Um, so there are two parts of inspiration. One is Gil Shahan's playing. The other one is my daughter's newborn and this rhyme I wrote for her. So I worked a great deal on, on the piece. And you know, what's interesting is what, when we worked on this, I made a lot of change and tried to, tried to find out what would be to make him, you know, sound good. And also for other violinists to play, you know? And after the premiere, he said one thing to me, which I thought was very high compliment. He said, your music make me sound good. I think it's it's really very high because I'm not a violinist and I couldn't make Gil Shahan a great violinist sound good. That's I'm pretty proud of myself. So that was the one you know important part of it. It speaks to this act of composing as also an act of listening, and I think that he just feels that you really listened. So let's let's listen to. And just uh, you spoke a little bit about merging or bringing together different musical styles and theory. But just for those of us who don't come from a a musical uh, background, what are the elements uh, that characterize Chinese uh, musical theory and uh, approaches to music that you try to to guard in your personal style and and the elements of Western music and, and how you learned from each? Yeah, music styles is is something that kind of troubles every composer. They try to find their voice, so to speak. But music style, to me, um, is not a technique or, uh, you know, you're writing like avant-garde or dissonant or consonant or in, in the Chinese pentatonic style. I think a music style, really, your own voice, so to speak, you cannot just put an equal sign in between with with your own voice and music style. Music style is something that there you could write like you know like Schoenberg or write 
like Stravinsky or write like Mozart, write like a Beethoven. You could call it Beethoven style, Mozart style, Stravinsky style. But those were specific techniques and style that you involve. But your own voice is not a style. Your own voice is your DNA, um, your character, your personality. For example, we all know uh, even with twins, they were born just a few minutes apart and they look exactly like even their parents couldn't uh, tell them from one apart from one to the other, but their characters are completely different. What makes you tick, so to speak, one tick, it might completely be different for, for the others. That is your personality. How do you get your personality, your character, your DNA into your composition? That is uh, through years of experience. I think that is your voice because that is truly yours. It's not anyone else. Uh, that is something that you cannot imitate, cannot learn from anybody because you have to be yourself. Uh, so what makes you think is you, and that's very important. So this is where, when technique also come into play, uh, where you learn this style, that style, all this is useful, but with one purpose is to get rid of them when you actually being creative you're not thinking about those you just be yourself and then the techniques all you learned are the things to make you free to express without any hindering so you just go directly your personality will go direct through you uh, as a filter through you whatever you learned is like a gigantic collection in your body in your brain and then through you as a filter it comes out your personality so i think all great artists at the end they manage to do that and without thinking about something else yes you can have traces of mozart in early beethoven traces of bach in, in mozart's music but that's that's good that's part of the you know stravinsky early stravinsky you have a rimsky kosakov that's you know his teacher so i think that that's all part of your education but at the end uh, you you are free of all of this and you become truly yourself when you don't think about those so when i write now for the last you know decade or more I stopped thinking about a long time ago that just not to think about uh, this is Chinese or this is this element is Western or this is Norwegian or this is Indian or this is Central Asian. I don't think about it. I just write music according to what I would like to write. But sometimes it, it has this music of more on this side and sometimes on the other side, but it doesn't matter, but there's always me in it. There's, there's, there is, you know, Stravinsky, for example, is a good sample. Stravinsky had gone through many periods of styles in his life. His early three ballets, we all know, this is a lot of Russian tradition. And then he went, to, went through his uh, called uh, neoclassical period. And, and then he, at the end, he even adapted a 12-tone uh, music but no matter which period his music is and you put on for five seconds you know it's Stravinsky you can tell it's Stravinsky's music because his personality was so strong that in any of the music he was writing it doesn't really matter so that's a 
kind of a demonstration of how style it doesn't it's not your voice your voice is your personality and you spoke a little bit before about yes i guess that we have we all have a rhythm even those of us who aren't musicians and you can see it in children too they can they're you know they're they're more, less controlled they're even dancing you know they're finding they're tuning into things even as a very small child and so i wondered uh to what element do you, you you were talking about you're rather you're riding a bicycle or you know these are physical activities you're tuning into your rhythm um you know what kind of physical activities do you you use to maybe tap into those rhythms uh, uh, composing as uh, and conducting and performing music as a it's a physical embodied process a rhythm is the most important part one of the most important part of music. I think there's there's more rhythm and tune of singing, let's say, and came into human being around the same time. Rhythm, you know, you work in the fields, you do horse horseback riding and all this, and you have rhythm. So rhythm is, you know, human uh, needs rhythm because it came from the pause, you know, but the rhythm, it's just like um, our, our pause, that uh, sometimes on one, one, one minute or one second, your pause is one way, but suddenly something stirred you up and then your pause speed up and then you go, go down. So that therefore music is not a metronome. The rhythm, music rhythm is not a metronome. And yes, you have to train, you know, my daughter is playing the piano and she's trained with the metronome all the time. But at the end, I wanted to get rid of the metronome. I say, often say you have to fall out of the metronome. When you practice with the metronome, first thing is you follow the metronome and then you fall out of the metronome. Be yourself because human pauses is not a metronome like a machine but you can go fast and slow, but within the realm, within the basic tempo. Uh, that's something also as a composer that I learned a great deal from me as a performer. And because of what I know that, you know, for example, tempo and, and rhythm is part of it. There's also no absolute tempo. People say, okay, you wrote down quarter note equals 60. That means you have 60 beats per minute. That's your tempo for a composition let's say and then every time you perform and you follow that that's not true uh, you don't do that uh, we all know if we go to uh, the orchestra performance let's say or a pianist you go to different hall the size of the hall is filled with audience or there's only half empty or the acoustic of the hall or decide how fast you want to play. It's not absolute. If you record in a studio, maybe you were thinking about the absolute tempo. This is the tempo I want to do. But when you play in the hall, you adjust. You have to because the audience reaction to is the audience is cold or audience is very warm audience, very receptive audience, you, you react also differently. So there's no such a thing called absolute tempo. The other proof is we think about, you know, uh, all the composers who performs their own music starts from very early years, but we don't have record. Even with uh, Mahler's music, 
uh, we have an early recording of Brahms playing his music on the old records. But we know that Stravinsky or Copland, who conducted their own music, they never followed the metronome mark. They marked. They wrote on the score. Say, okay, quarter equals 60. When they're playing, they don't do that. I, I don't check the metronome mark. Uh, just make sure it's right. I don't usually do that. So what do we do? We just get the character. So there's a great cellist, the Kazal, used to say there's no such a thing called the wrong tempo, only wrong character. The character is more important. So the composer, when a composer performs his or her own music, one thing they got to write, the character has to be right. They always get the characters right. But the tempo may or may not have anything to do with what they marked on the score. So that tells you inner rhythm. It's the character connected to the inner rhythm or the inner tempo of the music. So that should be different from different composers, from different performers. We all know, you know, if you have two great conductors who conduct Beethoven, the tempo could be quite different. If Beethoven were alive, he would probably think you were all wrong. But it doesn't really matter. Matters is if you, you move the audience. That's, I think it's a very important part. You get the audience, you move the audience. So there is one, more than one correct interpretation of any piece of composition. And the composer's composition should be interpretation. Composer's interpretation of his or her own composition should be one of the good ones, but it shouldn't be the only one. Of course, performers, we try to get or the composer's thoughts onto the piece. But then we know a great composition came into being. Uh, there were, again, like I said before, there's a lot of artistry that involved by the performers. Yes, it's so interesting that a, a good interpretation yeah. might not be the only or even the best. Sometimes you can get so, you can be so close to something that you have a particular vision yeah. But you might, there might be something else hidden in there that you don't know because you spent so much time on it, right? Yes. And, you know, one of the things that as a performer we do is we try to be as close as in the mindset of the composer when we perform other people's music. Uh, one time I was conducting Shostakovich Symphony, and in the one place that in the score, he wrote down, retard, just getting a little slower before the next section. And I just, no matter how hard I try, I just feels unnatural. This, this Shostakovich's style for the rest of the piece, that shouldn't have that. So I suspected this is someone else edit, uh, maybe the conductor who premiered the piece, who did it probably naturally, but Shostakovich out of respect, edit to the score. So later on, I had a chance to meet Tim Konoff, who is the, the music director of St. Petersburg Philharmonic, which I also conducted before. And so I had a conversation with him. He was the assistant conductor during the premiere of Shostakovich's symphonies. So I asked him this specific place. I said, do you remember by any chance, is this Shostakovich's writing or does someone else edit? He said there was edit later. So things like that. So I, I felt very good because I feel this couldn't be Shostakovich's original thinking when he was writing, but maybe the conductor who 
premiered it. It did it so naturally or wanted that. And it shows Tarkovich just wrote it down, which happened to me many, many times. And I found, oh, somebody did a little retire. That's good. So I wrote that in school. But for someone else felt, okay, but maybe you don't really need that. That tells you a lot about interpretation, how some people can make it really smooth and simple while the others might not think so. And that's so interesting how you're so attuned to his writing that you, you could hear it. And, and did you feel it was an improvement or you just it felt out of place for you in that particular instance? Well, I think that was place, I feel unnatural yeah. uh, because I couldn't do it naturally. I feel this kind of arbitrary. I could do it retard, of course, but, but it just feels unnatural and unmusical. So I, I didn't do it. When I performed it, I just ignored it. I told the orchestra, I said, just cross out the word retard. We're not doing the retard, which is okay. Uh, and then later on, when I had a chance to find out, to prove that, you know, this is unnatural. And I found out that indeed it was added. So things like that, I think it was quite fascinating. I think partially because I was a composer and a conductor, so I can kind of question these things. But for a conductor who never wrote music, who probably would not question that was edit or not, but he or she might not do it, just like if you feel unnatural, would not do it. I knew that Bernstein would not do it if he feels unnatural. It's so interesting. Uh, just We've just recently had the 500th uh, anniversary of uh, da Vinci's uh, passing. And it's funny those how those things, I don't know from the, the musical point of view, I wouldn't be able to spot that authorship by uh, a, another musician adding to Shostakovich. But there was this painting, Salvatore Mundi, that was attributed, as you I think you may remember, because it was well publicized, uh, attributed to da Vinci. And I just know as an artist, not being a da Vinci, expert but you just see it and you know that can't be da vinci maybe some uh, you know uh, there had been controversy but so many people came on board saying oh it is a da vinci but you can just tell it's just i don't know what it is but you can tell it's too symmetrical or too ordered or just another voice uh but it, it but it is strange it doesn't fit for whatever reason um i'm wondering as you look back on your composition I think about also uh, writing music or other kinds of writing as a form of biography and you reflect back on your compositions that you wrote as a younger man and I was you're able to travel in time even through your travel in time as your memory from your memories of China as as a, a young person. Um, how you feel your voice has evolved over the years and the things you discover when you go back to your youthful works? Well, I think I've gone through a few a large periods along with my search for my voice and at the same time of technical efficiency, so to speak. You know, one of the big issues, for example, is in 20th century music, since the, we call the tonal music, since Schoenberg had broken the tonal system that we write, so-called atonal music, which by itself, the term is not accurate in, in any sense. But in any way, that kind of a harmony, that how do you look for something that you can replace the tonal harmony, but, but still get the most important part of it, 
which is the tonal harmony with classical music, they managed to translate or transform the human feelings. And music is all about feel. You, you can only feel the music, hear the music, you feel. That's the, perhaps the most abstract art form in anything. You can't really put this is black, that's white. You cannot say that. So to translate the human feeling into the composition, that's a great composition should achieve. Doesn't matter which period, what style they are in, they or great art in general can do that. I think that's my um, my mission, so to speak, through the, the years of my career is try to be more precise and more direct to get into the core, which is to get the audience. You know, we think about this, uh, we go to a movie, right? So we go to movies um, and we knew from before we went to the movie theater, it's a made up story and its actors were hired and the story has nothing to do with our lives, uh, daily lives, but we cry, we laugh with them. And then we, if we do that at the end, say, it's a, such a great movie. We're so caught up by the story, by the movie, and we identified ourselves with the character in the movie. And it's very interesting, in a way, very silly. How should we do that? You know, and we, the same thing with the novel. Uh, we read novel and we know it's a made up story, but we are caught up and we're crying. So, so what is the power? That is the power of art. So the music does the same thing. And I think it's very important. Recently, I wrote um, an opera uh, called The Dream of the Red Chamber, which is based on the most famous Chinese novel. And the novel itself, is just give you the context it's three times as long as war and peace and, and has 500 characters in it so it's huge and there was a big problem you know opera house they asked the first question they ask is how long is going to be, be the opera is it going to be like a ring cycle four nights so five hours like prokofiev's war and peace so what what is the length? I said, you know, we want to do it over evening of, you know, about two hours of music, maybe two and 15 hour minutes. And then, but how do you do that? I said, well, we want to be as faithful as possible to the novel. But at the same time, I want the story, the music to have a good opera. Uh, so the most important thing, I, I want somebody to cry every night when they see it. And I said, at least one person in the house, opera house, that would cry. And then I succeeded the story as a composer uh, for this opera.
So I think that became a kind of a basic philosophy of my composition, because it doesn't matter I write a solo cello, solo violin piece, short piece, or write a big piece. I, I would like to find a one moment that I can have the audience forget about their existence so that they can cry, they can, they're touched by my music. That's what happens in the movie theater. We totally forget about our existence. We are drawn in with the story and the characters and the great performance. So we lost ourselves in the story. Now that is the power of art to me. And that is the part that I would like to do every time when I compose. That's uh, so beautiful and so well expressed that I think that, and I, you do it with your music, and uh, I think it is uh, very interesting that you're able to um, compress Dream of the Red Chamber to, to that time period, but yes, faithful first to the feeling you want to impart. And of course, they can discover more going back to the volumes of that novel. Um, but uh, yes, that's, that's very uh, beautiful. And I guess in closing, um, you've shared so much about your rich and varied artistic journey. Uh, we think a lot with this project uh, as it's an educational initiative about the future, uh, the importance of the arts, uh, what they give to us, how they can be incorporated in our other educational models. So as uh, you reflect on this, uh, what are some messages that you have for young people either going into the arts or embarking on other creative uh, pathways? Yeah, um, you know, in music composition, for example, it is improved in the last, say, few decades. But basically, it's hard for young people to study composition uh, because there's no set classes. You have art classes, you have writing classes from high school, from junior high school, from grade school on, but there are hardly any music composition classes. So what I encourage young people, if they feel they have something to write, just write and write them down. And of course, everybody was thinking about worrying about, oh, you know, am I supposed to do this? Is this the right way to do this? What my teacher would say, you know, uh, is the, you know, am I making, uh, breaking rules and all that? I said, don't worry about it. You know, it doesn't matter. I say this to my freshman student and to my doctor, PhD students the same way. I said, don't worry about it because your knowledge of theory, the study, the technique, or so to speak, you learned from your teachers or theory classes would never be enough. There's always behind your imagination. Your imagination is always ahead of you. So you should just try to do that and write down as whatever you like. Don't worry about the rules. No rules cannot be broken, but with one rule, which is if it sounds good, if it sounded good, then just do it. And then we'll find a reason to justify. You know, there's the theory is always after the function, after the, the fact. So there are theorists or historians and try to figure out why that Da Vinci art is so great or why Stravinsky's piece is so great. So you try to analyze it. But, but I said, 
that's that goes for everybody. If Beethoven had to worry about whether he broke any rules, he wouldn't be Beethoven, you know. And Mozart was the same thing. So every composer, every creative artist, always break grounds without worrying about. It. Let their intuition, let their imagination fly, and let fly, so to speak. Well, thank you. That is that is a beautiful message, and we all have to bypass our thinking and just get just into that um, creative process. So I want to uh, thank you, Bright Shang, for inviting us into your imaginative world, discussing the importance of individuality, the interplay between creativity, education, and technique, and for your music, which crosses cultures and history. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Mashalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Fong with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Angela He. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Yong Li. The music excerpts from Shanghai Overture, Red Silk Dance, Dream of the Red Chamber Overture, and Let Fly which is also the background music, are composed by Bright Shun and performed by various symphony orchestras. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.